one, one, one part uh, that I didn't publish as an article, I only spoke about it in a webinar of Wolf Institute in Cambridge, was about Thou Shall Not Rape. Um, where, yeah, where um, Moses is uh, approached, his sister Miriam approaches him and says, "What are you? There's only ten commandments. Don't you see anything missing here?" And I was trying to, I was trying to ask, is this a critique of religion, or is it, is, or is this a critique of our culture? Um, and I claim that it's not a critique of religion at, at all. It's, it's a critique of, of, of the human condition. Hi there, welcome back to our podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I am Dani, I'm working on my PhD, and I chat with early career researchers to share their academic journeys with you. Today, I am chatting with Netta Schramm, who has an academic background in physics and Jewish thought from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, which is quite an interesting combination. Her work on Jewish thought focuses on audio and video analysis, including satire, instead of text, and that has won her prizes and scholarships, all while teaching physics in local high schools. I will introduce Neda to you in a minute, but first I'd like to invite you to visit our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You will find us with the handle at what to do with that, where the two is spelled as the number two. We also have a blog on our website and videos on our YouTube channel. And lastly, we are curious about what you think about our episodes. So don't forget to rate us on your favorite podcast app and to subscribe. Let's get back to Netta Schramm then. Netta started out with a, a BSc in physics with a minor in Jewish thought at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She continued with an MA in Jewish thought at the same university and won the Gorin Prize for excellent MA thesis. So, it was not surprising that she decided to pursue a PhD degree in the same field. Neda already has five article publications on her name, has presented her work at international conferences, and was a Minerva Fellow at the Center for Israel Studies at the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich. If you are interested in analyzing audio and video material, instead of text analysis, you should check out the conference called I'm Not a Text, organized by Neda on May 31st in Israel. Moreover, you should know that at the same time as all of the above just mentioned, Neda has been teaching physics in high schools. I feel that you have a very interesting story to tell here. Welcome, Neda. How are you doing? Uh, hi, thank you. Thank you so much. It feels uh, a little strange to hear this a uh, big presentation about my life. Um, I feel good. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Great. Well, like I always say, people seem often surprised. This is based on what I learned about you through your resume and earlier talks we had, and it's all you. You've done all of that. So yeah, you can be proud of that. Thank you. So let's cheer to that. First of all, everything you've accomplished so far. I've got my regular amaretto with me. What are you having? I'm having Capo MB, which means it's a small cappuccino in a glass cup, very Triestini, Triestini where I'm living in Italy. So. All right. Nice. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> My drink is actually also Italian, right? Because it's, it's an amaretto. Yeah. Which originates from Italy. <laughs> All right. Um, well, we're having our Italian drinks. 
Um, and we're actually in the same time zone because I'm in, in Germany and you're in Italy. So we're like right above and above each other. <laughs> I wanted to ask you some short questions. And the first sure. one is uh, quite a regular one already. And that is, what is the first thing you do in the morning? I try to get the kids that are jumping on me to stop jumping on me. <laughs> That's how it starts? You wake That's up how it starts. Jumping kids? Kids, yes. All right. <laughs> Then what do you like most about teaching physics in high school? The kids. I like the students. They're very entertaining. Okay. They're not boring. They don't have... Yeah, they're, they're teens and... It's a very wild age, and it's funny. And <laughs> the material is very repetitious because it's the same every year. Mm -hmm. But the kids are different. <laughs> they yeah, do change. They change, and I like, you know, once you're on the undergraduate level, that they're more sophisticated. You know, they want to. But high school kids are <laughs> they're they're wild. <laughs> okay. Wow. That, but it's nice that you're uh, doing that. I suppose you're not doing that right now in Italy. You usually teach in Israel, right? Yeah, here in Italy, I was doing a bit in the International School of Trieste, but um, not more. Also, I'm trying to focus on finishing my dissertation. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> yeah. I hear you. That's yeah. Right. Okay. Talking about you, uh, your research, right? And your analysis, mm -hmm. you analyze videos. But what is your favorite TV show? <laughs> I would probably say the first season of The Jews Are Coming. Yes, oh, I really like that show too. I don't understand all of the details because my Hebrew is like not at a native level. So a lot also gets past me because there's language jokes. But yes, yes, what I understand, yes. I really like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I liked it so much. I had to write an academic article on it and ruin it. You know, when you explain jokes, that's the end of them. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Can you still watch a TV show or a video without overanalyzing it? Well, I always was an overanalyzer. But it's the kind of analysis I do is not a cinematic analysis. It's a philosophical analysis, hermeneutical analysis. So it's not something you do as you're watching. It's something you do afterwards, you know. So, yeah, I can, I can enjoy TV. <laughs> yeah. Don't have much time for TV, but I can enjoy yeah. it. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. And we'll get more into the specific yeah. analysis that you do yeah. in the study of Jewish thought in a bit. But we start at the beginning, right? As I usually do. Mm -hmm. So you have a BA in physics and you are a high school teacher and your minor at the time was on Jewish thoughts. And that's what you continued studying in the MA. Can you tell us first a little bit more about what it is, this study of Jewish thought, and um, what it was that has drawn you to that field? Okay, so uh, the, the weird thing is I planned my career path. This was not a mistake. This wasn't a change of mind. People sometimes think, oh, you saw that physics isn't for you, so you switch it. No, I knew from the beginning that I'm going to take physics and then continue my, my uh, study of, of uh, Jewish thought. Okay. Um, yeah, because... I love physics, but I know I'm never going to be, you know, my mathematical aptitude is not the highest, not good enough for what you need to, to be a real physicist. And um, I wouldn't want to live my life in the lab, but I do enjoy it. I like it. I learned a lot of, you know, my thinking skills. Um, it's great. So, um, so that's what I plan to do anyway. And I was drawn into modern Jewish philosophy 
probably because of high school friends who got me into uh, different uh, thinkers uh, like Gishayao Leibovich, whom I'm actually working on till this day. And I was reading, you know, the Code of Maimandis, uh, you know, Mesentis, you know, 13th century <laughs> thinker. I was, yeah, that was kind of that weird type of person. Yeah, interested in these, in these types of, uh, of uh, theological slash philosophical writings. I've, I've liked it, you know, since I'm a teenager, probably. Well, that's what my mom always told me, that I should study something that I like. <laughs> and that's how I got where I am today, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. so you say that it was a very conscious decision to yeah. major in physics, but then continue with a minor in Jewish thoughts. So yeah. why not just Jewish thoughts? Right, so I, 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 in high school, my major in, in Israel, and we have a major also in high school, and my major was physics. Because I was fascinated by the subject, and I really wanted to learn more about physics. It was just pure okay. curiosity. I was, I was passionate for the topic, but I also knew that I don't want this as my career. So I said, if I, I, you can't minor in physics. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. You have to learn enough to, to understand what you're doing. So I said, I'll minor in my, in my next field, you know, in my job, I'll minor in it. And for my hobby will be my major. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. you did tell me already that you do mm -hmm. like teaching, right? And yes. when you were doing the MA, you won an award and you published an article on your thesis. Mm -hmm. So it seemed only natural, right, to decide to continue with a PhD after that. But was it really? Because you were also teaching physics, so you already had a job. And it was something you told me before that you liked. So why not just continue with that? Right. No, the the, the plan was to get a PhD actually all along. And okay. uh, teaching was teaching was a fun way of sustaining myself. Instead of working in a uh, restaurant or a bar, <laughs> I could work as a teacher because uh, I had the right credentials. <laughs> yeah. And you get a little, you, you pay, you get, pay, you get paid a bit better maybe. Um, but I know also that I don't want to do a career as a teacher. It's fun, but it's not fun enough. If I had to go to school every single day, five days a week, and do nothing but reteach the materials I've taught for the past gazillion years, I would be very bored. Um, in fact, I was teaching in very specialized, I wasn't actually teaching regular courses, I was getting special research projects, I was, we were building a NATO satellite, I mean, I was doing things that are research, uh, you know, based, because that's the type of person I am. <laughs> So that wouldn't that couldn't have been a full time career for me, uh, even if I do continue teaching. But it would always have to be a part time thing for me. And you also just mentioned that you always knew you were going to do a PhD. That is very yeah. different from my experience because I didn't know what a PhD was until I was offered a scholarship for one. Yeah. So where did that come from? Do you have a, a family background in academia? Um, well, my parents were in academia, but they never got a PhD. Neither of them did. But I found a notebook I wrote when I was in fifth grade, one day when I was cleaning up my parents' house, and it said there, when I will be 30, I will be a professor of physics and I will have four children. Wow. So, <laughs> <laughs> that, that has passed, that has happened. But yeah, I think I had, my grandfather had a doctorate in physics and my other grandfather was a doctor of, of, of psychiatry. So it wasn't something that was unknown to me, like I knew of academia but it wasn't that I was pushed there by my parents or anything like okay. that it was just from love of research yeah you know, love of learning and interest and yeah liking this particular 
topic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So tell me about that topic. Tell me about your PhD research. Yeah. <laughs> so w what happened was I didn't realize um, what I'm going to be writing my PhD uh, until a little bit into the process. What happened was when I was finishing writing my thesis, I wrote about this man who he was not very well known and I read his books but before I was going to submit my thesis I re I checked to see if there's any recording of him speaking and when I saw that there is one recording of him in the, in the National Library in Israel I ran to the library to listen to this recording before I submit my thesis because I said I have to hear his voice I want to know him like like know him better and I suddenly I heard he had a very thick accent which I didn't um, imagine when I was reading his books, even though I knew like he was, I knew where he was born, and but still I didn't. I, when I read him, I wasn't imagining his 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 diction, his his. And afterwards, I said, "Wait a moment! What I was doing is actually a claim. I'm actually saying that you cannot understand a written work of philosophy or theory or theology or anything." Um, as well as what you can gain out of listening to the person speak. Now, we don't have any recordings of Plato. That's obvious. Right. <laughs> but uh, we do have recordings of people who are still alive today. Um, but still, uh, this was very outrageous because nobody in my department would ever... Uh, think of researching anybody using YouTube as their research method. It's, 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 you know, this is, you know, the faculty of humanities in, you know, the, it's, it's not what you do. You don't do discourse analysis. It's, it's very different. You look, you look at texts, you read texts very well, but you read texts. Um, but I realize that's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say, no, we don't have to read only read texts. We can read texts and listen to the people speak. So that's how I uh, developed the basic methodological uh, outlook for my dissertation. Okay, so what video material or uh, audio material did you decide to work with for the PhD project? Right, so I decided I need to find three uh, public intellectuals who share a passion for speaking to the public and have had them these talks recorded and broadcast, so that has to be some, that those, those are parameters I need to find. And except for that, um, I prefer them to be very different, as different as can be. So I can show that if you compare their audiovisual presentation, you will find something very different. So I had, you know, give or take, who should I choose? And I decided to choose uh, three uh, Orthodox Jews self-defined orthodox jews because okay if we what is what is orthodox jews uh, one of them one of them was the chief rabbi of israel he was born in iraq his name is uh Ovadi yosef rabbi Ovadi yosef and he was the leader of the shas political party in israel and very very important uh for um for israeli history but he also has thousands and thousands of lectures and and sermons online available on YouTube since the 90s, okay. even the 80s, yeah. Um, and the other person I chose is, a, he was a professor, a scientist, and a public intellectual. His name is Yeshayao Leibovich, and he was a very harsh critic of Israeli uh, politics um, post-1967, very harsh. And he was also like the father of the Israeli left, very important, and many recordings of him as well. And finally, I chose someone younger. He's a generation younger than they are. He's still alive. His name is Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, and he's um, more postmodern. So his his way of speaking is 
is more subjective and, and it gives us another view. And he's into interfaith dialogue, interdenominational dialogue. He's all about building bridges. Um, and he is based in the United States and also in Israel. So those are the three people I chose. Very unlikely trio. Uh, but it's very likely if you're trying to cho- show differences. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a very interesting choice. Uh, you want to have something mm-hmm. to compare and to write about, right? Yeah. yeah. So that sounds very interesting. All right, uh, so it's their text, but you also said that you've been analyzing uh, the satire show, which is The Jews Are Coming, right? This uh, Israeli TV show. Yeah. Um, do you want to say a little bit about that and how you're analyzing that and how it fits in your work? Yeah, sure. Um, so this kind of analysis is not the same. It, it, it's based on reading audiovisual material. That's the connection. What is different is that I'm looking at, at the the series that Joseph are coming as a an, the next piece in a chain of interpretations to the Bible. Okay. So, so I, I'm not I'm not taking the text of the actor and trying to learn something about the actor's philosophy, which is what I'm doing in my dissertation. Rather, I'm trying to see how the creators of the show are trying to interpret the Bible differently and how they're using different ways of thinking about conceptualizing the Bible. And I, uh, I think it's very radical and, and lovely, but people say, oh, they're totally, they're, they're really, it's a totally new chapter in, 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 in secularity. It's a totally new thing. I say, no, it's not so different. And I compare it to Yiddish works and show that they both have an idea about what the text is and what can be done about the text. And they also have claims. So I actually show that it's not that different. It's not that new. It's new, but it's also, it's also old. So that's what I did with, with, uh, with that. Uh, I, I chose a few specific uh, skits and I, I, I worked with them. I did not analyze the entire show. Obviously. Right. That would be a lot. Because I think they have a few seasons with a lot of episodes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And personally, I think that some of them are more... Uh, for me as a scholar, some of the skits have more to say as for, in my, for what I'm looking for. And others are maybe silly or funny or outrageous, but I, as a scholar, I have less to say about them. So, yeah. So uh, this video material, is that a different project than your dissertation? Was that a separate article you've worked on? Yes, yes, it was a, it was a separate article. It actually was born out of my MA thesis. That one was from the MA. Okay, I understand. My MA was a different project, but it's actually, it's the link. It's how I moved from hermeneutics, from biblical hermeneutics, to video hermeneutics. It's, it's a really, it's a link. Um, <laughs> yeah, the source material might change, but the ideas are the same. Mm-hmm. You're looking at it from the same angle, right? From uh, Jewish thought studies and from your idea that we can really learn from the video and the audio analysis as well. Yes. I like that. Uh, I also mentioned earlier that you already have five publications and I knew that one of them was from your MA thesis, which you just explained was about this satire Israeli TV Oh, no. <laughs> the one from my MA is in Hebrew. It's a different one. <laughs> Oh, okay. So <laughs> you have a lot of publications. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Yeah, you've been working yeah. on a lot of things, which is great. Um, yeah. Can you tell me how you managed to do so much at the same time? How can you work on a dissertation and go over the works of three important people who have probably said so much that you needed to analyze and also managed to work on different material uh, and publish about that. Yeah. Well, the secret is I haven't done it 
fast. I, everything has been go going on slowly. It took me four years to finish my master's thesis and I'm on my fifth year of my PhD dissertation. And I'm, I think that the, the long-term projects have a, have a lot of, because it's like a spiral. I visit and then I revisit the same material, so I have time. And if I outreach and, and branch out to side projects, because, you know, sometimes it gets a little boring to work on the same thing. So, yeah, I have the time um, to do so. That's what happened. I was working on the same material for so long. And as I was working, I suddenly I got, I, I, you know, I got interested in something else. So I had the extra time to do a little detour and maybe publish an article and still work on my main project. Because a project that takes five years is, or six years is... It's a little depressing. You want to finish something. <laughs> so that's what the, yeah, so that's why those little, because in my thesis, it's, a, it's actually writing a book. It's not articles. So that was, um, that was a nice way of breaking up the task um, and having some milestones on the way. That's very true. Yeah. Okay. We also spoke about how um, sometimes a field that you're in is very traditional in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. Like in humanities, often in history, we also see it in philosophy. Uh, it's very text-based. I'm mm -hmm. doing a discourse analysis and I'm focusing on text as well, so I know yeah. what you're saying. <laughs> um, and then you come and you're like, no, I'm going to do something different because it's interesting. Um, how has the field responded to you? Do you feel like you still fit in? Um, yeah. And how would that? How do you try to tell others that you fit in and that you belong in this field and that this research works? That, that's a very good question. Um, I'll say yes and no, and I'll explain. When I'm talking to researchers who are working with uh, Middle Ages materials, people who cannot do the kind of research I'm doing because of technical problems, such as, you know, the phonograph hasn't been invented yet, they love what I'm doing. They're like, yeah, sure, if we had recordings, yeah, it's amazing. But people who are working in fields that are closer to mine are like, you're not convincing us. This is, you know, it's great. It's sociology. You're not doing uh, philosophy or theology uh, research. <laughs> Um, not everybody, some of them like it, but they're like, you know, you're not in the same discipline as we are anymore because we do text and you're just doing YouTube, um, which is fine. I mean, I'm fine with that, but that's why the conference that I organized in May is bringing together a lot of outcasts, <laughs> all kinds of people who have managed to find themselves in a no man's land in between disciplines, doing a bit of this and a bit of that. And uh, that's, that's what I did. I, I said, I'll find a community of people who think like me. And uh, it was very surprising. A lot of the people who reached out to me were actually artists or, uh, you know, doing some art research, um, mm. which I wasn't expecting. Um, so I don't know. What, what does that mean? I, I, don't, I can't explain it, but that's what happened. Talking about that conference, it's called Another Text, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to uh, plug it and tell us where we can find it? Are we still able to participate or to view it somehow? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, you can uh, you can search search me on Facebook. It's on my page. There's a website, but the name is long, so I can't just say it here. But I think that if you Google I'm not a text 2022 Hebrew University of Jerusalem, it will pop up. And yeah, the it's open to the public, anybody who's 
anywhere near, you sign up now, you'll get a free lunch, <laughs> a name tag, and a cup of wine at the end. Yeah. And great people, great presentations, artists, researchers, philosophers, uh, historians, musicologists. It's going to be really, there's going to be a lot of things going on there. Performance uh, lab, I don't know. <laughs> that sounds really good. So like you said, to find a community, which is so important when we're doing our PhD research, right? Yeah. Hi, before we continue with the interesting story and research topic of NEDA, I would like to introduce you to another academic podcast, the Macademia podcast, and their friends who host it, Elena Itzkowitz and Yeshar Offer. Hi, I'm Elena Itzkovic, a stem cell and translational autism scientist. And I'm Ofer Izabalane, a human molecular genomic researcher and the founder of two life science companies. And together, we started the Macademia podcast. Macademia podcast is mainly geared towards scientists and researchers that are curious about research and career development outside of academia. Going through the motions of grad school and a postdoc in science, we both had similar questions about our careers. Is an academic career really the best option following a PhD or a postdoc for scientists? What is a successful career for researchers? Can it be there are other opportunities we were not encouraged to explore during our graduate studies? Can we ask someone who can help us think about other possibilities? And this is where we come to fill this gap. With all the information you were looking for, we bring you the informational interviews you wanted to do, but didn't know where to start looking. We talk with brilliant people whom are passionate about their job, and together we explore how they reach where they are from way back in their academic training days. Join us at the Macademia podcast on any podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks, Elena and Offer. We'll be sure to check it out. Let's now get back to Netta's story. All right, uh, talking about interdisciplinary research, because that's then the community that you're in right now. Um, what do you think are the advantages of doing interdisciplinary research? Well, I, the advantages are innumerable. You get more than one perspective. You you stop using jargon in a you know just when you're always in the same discipline, people just use words without them meaning anything and they think they mean something because everybody is using them. But once you're talking to people who are from a different field, they're like, what? what? Why are you using that word? What does it even mean? And uh, it helps you uh, say what you want to say better and also um, expands your horizons in the most basic sense of the word. So I find it stimulating personally. Um, a friend of mine told me it's not the best thing to do if you want tenure, but I don't care. I want to be stimulated. So, you know. Oh, yeah? Why is that? <laughs> because then it seems like you're, you're, you're a master of no trade instead of a master of all trades. You know, if you're specialized, then everybody knows what you're doing. But if you're an interdisciplinary, so what are you? Are you uh, media studies? Um, no, I'm not media studies, you know. Right. What label? Yeah. yeah, right. And and also there's there's the, a serious uh, fear of interdisciplinarianism, meaning just unprofessional, shallow knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, it's true that could be a problem, 
Um, the, the secret is to be inter interdisciplinary in a smart way in which you master whatever it is you're trying to do and also peek over your own book to see what other people are writing. Um, that's the right way of doing it. The wrong way of doing it is to try and read 10 books, you know, just skim them and not actually understand anything deep. But if you know your field and then you're borrowing terms and borrowing perspectives from other fields in a responsible way, then it, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have yeah. to be shallow. That sounds legit to me. Yeah. Um, I'm also in this field that we call migration studies, <laughs> which is not part of any faculty, right? Like where does that belong? Like right now, um, I'm in Germany at the university with social sciences and it's political science, but in Haifa, my home university, I'm part of a European study center which is not even a faculty, right? That's also covering everything. And I have a supervisor from history and a supervisor from political science. So I get confused about this every now and then too. And I need to convince myself again and write down, like, this is why I'm doing it. I am specializing in something. I just am the one who has to tell other people that it is so. <laughs> right, right. But as I said, there's a community of people who are doing these kinds of projects and we understand each other, so... Okay, thanks for sharing that. Um, I saw on your resume um, that you actually got a Minerva Fellowship, which is also the group that sponsors us at the University of Haifa, right? The Minerva Center. And that you spent a year as a visiting fellow um, at a German university in Munich at the Center for Israel Studies. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that before, but you just told me that you're in Italy at the moment. <laughs> so I was asking, wanted to ask, what was a year abroad like for you or still like for you? Mm -hmm. How did it benefit your research? Um, yeah, tell me more about how you got there. Yeah, so actually I was in Munich for two years. It was not one year, it was two years. Okay. And it was, a, it was a very enriching experience. Uh, I did all my degrees in the Hebrew University and I desperately needed to see uh, other modes of uh, operation. And um, that was from just from that, it was amazing. Yeah, it was a little annoying, <laughs> unfortunate, I would say, that soon after I arrived, uh, COVID hit. And um, mm. therefore, everything moved on to Zoom, and my German was not the best, and trying to follow the seminars <laughs> on Zoom was a catastrophe. <laughs> but uh, that was a little, but still, it was, I'm, it was really, really, it was wonderful. Um, yeah, my, 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 my professors there, Professor Michel Brenner and Yossi Schwarz, it was, it was a treat to have someone who isn't your advisor interested in your work, uh, mm -hmm. listening to your updates and the peers and the different methods. This day, people, there were many of them were historians. And I really, as I said, I like interdisciplinarianism. I really feel that it enriched me as a researcher. And I'm not even sure I can even... Uh, appreciate it yet it's too soon after I've been there but I'm sure it, it made a big effect on me as a researcher and as a person um, I'm sure it, it was a wonderful experience okay and are you also part of a visiting fellowship program at the moment in Italy sadly I am not <laughs> I am here in Italy because of my partner we were very lucky that in Munich our careers managed to coincide geographically but that is kind of rare. We're both academics. So um, when, yeah, so right now I do not have a fellowship uh, here in Italy. 
Um, but uh, he does. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that works. Uh, so that works. Yes, yes. I also brought my partner with me to Germany. Yeah, yeah. and uh, we're also trying to find a way for him to <laughs> make it work. Um, yes, we'll yes. see how it goes. Yeah. But it's really nice that you're able to do that, to decide together uh, to go somewhere for some, for the benefit of maybe only one person's career, right. uh, which is not easy. But at least you are now also able to work on your dissertation and your PhD, right? Definitely. definitely. And I ran a research group this year. It was partially Zoom and partially I came to Israel a few times. And it was really, it was really, it was wonderful. The only problem is, a very personal problem, we do have three children and they're a little tired of switching languages. (laughs) So um, we've now decided that we don't know where his next position will be. We don't know where my next position will be. No matter what, the kids are not learning a fifth language. Uh, So either a German-speaking country or an English-speaking country or a Hebrew-speaking country or an Italian-speaking country, but not French. (laughs) (laughs) That's just enough. I feel like there's still a lot of options open then. Right. But the problem is, as like we're very different fields, it may happen that we both get a job opportunity, but not in the same country and not in the same continent. So... (laughs) So it's just another, it's just another thing we have to take into consideration. Um, that is one of yes. the things about academia, right? That you never know, especially when you're an early career researcher and you don't have tenure yet, yeah. um, to not know what the future will bring and where you will live even in the next year, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not easy and it's not easy uh, for everybody. And I think it's not easy for the children of these academics either. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. they also learn a lot from it, right? And they do have these languages which might benefit them in the future. Who knows? For sure. For sure. For sure. No, it's it's great. But they both all my kids say we will never ever be academics because your life stinks. <laughs> so we don't want to do that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Actually, I think that already brings us to the next question, which is usually my very last one. Uh, but I feel like I can follow up a lot on it this year. Um, and that is the most important question of this podcast, which is, what are you going to do with that? What do you plan to do with the PhD? So let's just start with that and then we'll see where it goes. Right. So the easy answer is I want to ma- I want to make a living with using my PhD. Um, I, I, although as we already discussed, I do have another opportunity to work as a physics teacher. I would like to be able to use my PhD to make my living. Um, so what, what could I do? The two things I love to do is research and teach. Now I know of a certain kind of institution where you can do both and that's called a university, (laughs) but (laughs) everybody knows that the chances of, uh, uh, you know, acquiring a position uh, in the university is small and um, I'm I'm open to the fact that this might not happen but I'm hoping that no matter where I find myself using my education to teach it has it doesn't have to be in the in the academic setting even though that would be it would be great I really hope that what I took from from my university experience which was Uh, workshops, seminars, summer schools, where I would meet like-minded people and we could exchange ideas about, you know, I hope I can continue to find places to do that, uh, Mm -hmm. even 
in, even after I'm finished as a graduate student. I think that's the most exciting part of academic life. Um, and I hope that that will continue, even if I do not make my living um, doing that. It sounds like a very realistic answer, right? And that's something I've also talked about with other guests, that there's so much competition and there's so little positions for everyone who wants those positions that it's very hard to get in. And it's also a long way to go, right? Because you might need one, two, maybe multiple postdocs. You need uh, publications. Uh, you need to be in the right place in the right time. All of those things. So I think it's very healthy to always keep in mind that it might not happen and to have a plan B. And some people have told me that they want to open a restaurant as a plan B. <laughs> Everyone has their own things. It seems that you at least have an emergency plan with, with teaching physics, right? Uh, but you also know what it is you want, right? You know right. what you like. And I think that's always a very good starting point. Um, I'm also trying to go about it uh, that way. I know that you have just handed in your dissertation and that you're waiting for the feedback, right? <laughs> yeah, so we're all keeping our fingers crossed. <laughs> um, yeah. You handed it in in Hebrew, right? Yes, I, I wrote in Hebrew, um, which has the ups and downs. Um, yeah, I wrote in Hebrew. So the ups are that you didn't have to translate anything, probably, because the speech was in Hebrew? For two out of the three spoke mainly in Hebrew, even though Leibovitch did speak in German sometimes. Um, the, that's part of the ups. The ups is, yeah, I'm, I'm fluent in English, but my, my Hebrew skills are probably better. The down is that when I want to publish my dissertation into English, then I need to translate everything. But the, the ups of that is that that's a form of re-editing everything I've already done. Um, so when I'm now when I'm taking a chapter and I'm turning it into an article, so because I have to translate it anyway, I can edit it without feeling uh, the pain of slashing and cutting up my work of art, so-and-so-and-so, so cool. Um, because it's, it's changing languages, it's changing form. So that's nice. But it's, it's double the work, for sure. So you are now focusing on writing articles out of the dissertation? That and a few uh, conferences that I'm going to be attending in the next few months. I'm going to be in Oxford this summer, and then I'm going to be in London. I'm going to be in the Hebrew University. I'm giving a few. <laughs> so I have a few papers I have to present so it's it's making it's working it's preparing for the conferences which is preparing articles but uh, yeah it's it's all that and I'm also go I'm going to be getting a, uh, I'm going to have to fix all kinds of problems in the dissertation I'm sure of that and yeah having somebody look at you know type but proofreading so I'm not done with the dissertation yet it's it's still a not thing. done I yet. Did. But no, not getting that. close. Yeah, yeah. I, I know I'm going to have to reformat the bibliography. That's the big fear. <laughs> mm. Wow, that would suck. It's so <laughs> <laughs> so boring. <laughs> just put a lot of music on the background and just soldier through it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and all of that that you're doing, uh, editing it, translating parts to English articles, conferences, presentations, summer schools, um, never-ending stuff like that that is part of your PhD, even though you're almost done, let's say. Yeah. 
Uh-huh. Um, that's all building up to applying for a postdoc position, I assume. Yes. yes. Have you looked into any applications yet? Yes, I have. Um, the applications that were possible to apply for uh, without proof of uh, completion of your PhD, I've uh, tried to apply. But most of the everybody knows that there's this gap year where you've mm-hmm. handed in your PhD, but you still did not receive your PhD. So different applications look at, look at this gap differently. So many opportunities are not open for me this year. I mean, for from November, they will not be open for me. So I, I have to think um, what I'm going to be doing once the, the dissertation is, is formally, uh, you know, going to be read by, by the readers. I'm, I'm, at the, I'm at the pre-stage. I'm not the, the readers. It's not there yet. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm planning to, on, on applying for a, pre, uh, for a postdoc, but I'm also planning on making sure I have enough to live on. And some of these postdoc positions are not very high paying. So I have to try and get some courses to teach. Um, uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm working on uh, building my profile. Here in Italy, it's a problem because I don't know if I will be here and because um, I do not speak Italian, which is uh, okay. a problem. Um, but if I go back to Israel, then I have many more options. And if I move someplace else in Europe, <laughs> that's... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I ask you a more personal question? And feel sure. free to not wanting to answer. Um, how much longer would your partner have to be in Italy to complete his part of his early career research that he's doing? Yeah, that's a very good question. The The best answer we can say is we don't know exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, um, come, he wants to, to come back to Israel and get a position in academia as a professor. Uh, that's not a okay. question. He's, he's totally, he's totally on there. And, um, he still needs a few more publications to, to be, uh, to do that. Um, so it could be one more year, but if he gets a really good offer to do a five year, uh, junior, junior researcher somewhere past, finish his postdoc and, and move up, he might want to take that. Um, I don't know. That's, uh. We have to see. Like first, there needs to be an offer on the table. Uh, but yeah, he's applying now for junior for jun- for junior uh, researcher positions. Junior, you know, finishing the postdoc. He's already done two postdocs, and he's trying to move okay. up uh, to the next level. Yeah, also very impressive. <laughs> so his answer to what are you going to do with that is um, for now becoming that professor, but preferably in Israel. I hear. Yeah. Yeah. And is that also something that you're hoping to then, like, would Israel be the ultimate end goal? Uh, For me, I think so, because I have a family, I have friends, I have a support network. um, And also for my field, Jewish studies, uh, Jewish philosophy, Jewish theology is is very developed in in Israel. It's, of course, developed in other places, um, but my language capabilities, only when I reached Germany did I realize how important it is to feel secure uh, in the language you're using. And I felt so ignorant when I could not express myself properly. Uh, And my best language is Hebrew, so that would be the easiest. But of course, uh, yeah, I mean, we're not, we're not, we don't know what the future holds for us. That's I totally understand the language thing because it took me like I feel like I picked up Hebrew pretty fast and that I understood a lot that was going on around me very fast 
but I just wouldn't want to say anything in Hebrew. I just kept speaking English to everyone because I was so nervous about sounding stupid, right? About not being able to express what it was exactly I wanted to say with what I knew in Hebrew. And now we got to Germany and I had to to use the German that I had learned in Israel, right? In English, not in Dutch, which is my native tongue. So everything in my mind is going backwards. And only now that I'm here for a few months, I've been starting to become more comfortable and I'm asking, and I'm not even asking people if they speak English anymore. I just try to do it in German yeah. and see how far we get. Yeah. It's, it's very <laughs> but I have hard. to say that both in Israel and in Germany and also in other places I've been that when you try to speak their language with them, even if you make a lot of mistakes and you might sound stupid, <laughs> they really appreciate it. And they right. just think you're smart for having tried. Right? They don't actually think you're stupid for having learned another language. Right. I, I agree. But sometimes uh, you get the feeling that they understood something, but it was the exact opposite of what you wanted to say. <laughs> so maybe it's better not to. <laughs> it's a struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask one more thing. And um, I'm not sure if you have an answer yet. And I have to tell you that I don't have an answer yet either. Because obviously I'm an early career researcher doing my PhD in academia. Trying to get to as many universities as I can. To be able to do something with this. Now in Germany. Drag my partner with me <laughs> to this country. Yeah. And he doesn't speak any German. That <laughs> um, I also don't know where we're going to end up. If I'm going to find a postdoc position in a different country. If that will be easy for him to also find a job there or not. Uh, we both have family and friends in Israel. So that's always like a place that would be a coming home to, right? Um, but if you would get a postdoc position next year in December and it's not in Israel, would you take it? Well, as I said, we have to take, consider the whole family. And that means I can't put myself first and forget about my four dependents. Um, so if this position would not uh, force my kids to A, learn a new language, and B, tear our family into little bits uh, in an unreasonable amount of way, then I would say definitely yes. Um, but we, we, we would be willing to do some sort of uh, dual location, remote kind of thing where my husband is working in one place and we're based in another place if it's not too far and he's doing some working from home and everything. We're open to such uh, ideas, but it has to make sense. It has to be in mm -hmm. some way reasonable. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm responsible also for the lives of three children. I, I, can't, I can't just you know, uh, forget that. Even though I have my career, you know, aspirations. So the answer would be yes, I would be very happy to take whatever position it is that I obviously wanted to apply for. Um, but I would, have to see how, I would have to see how it works out. And the, uh, the automatic question, uh, answer would not be yes, sure. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> because... But that's also the thing. Like you are in control of what you're applying to. You're not going to apply for a position in France most likely because that would be another language then, right? Right, 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 right. That's 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 very true. And I have to say that, for instance, what happened with with Munich that we were both in Munich um, after we learned that he was accepted to Munich. Only then did I apply. I wasn't going to apply if he's not going to be going there. You see, mm -hmm. that, that would have been pointless. Why should I go into all? This? So once I knew that he's going to Munich, I said I'll apply. If, I'll apply to Munich as well, and we both got in. 
Um, so I would say something like that. I would apply now for Israel because that's a place I want to go anyway. Um, but I would not apply to some random city in some random country in Europe if I didn't know that there's a good chance of uh, my partner wanting to go there or ex already accepted there. Because we're a family unit, you know. <laughs> the pros and cons. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, then I was also wondering, like, you haven't applied yet for any postdoc positions. I assume you didn't have an interview yet because you're still working on your PhD dissertation. Um, but you said your partner already is working on a second postdoc. You both have three children, but it affects your application very differently is yeah. my assumption, right? You being the mother and him being the father. Do you think that would have an effect on your applications and how... What is, have you thought about a strategy on how to tackle that? Well, as I said, the biggest difference between the two of us is his absolute desire to become a physics professor and my willingness to work in another setting which involves research and teaching that is not an academic setting. I would be happy in a think tank, a research group, whatever. It doesn't have to be academia. It could be some foundation. I would be happy. But for him, he doesn't. It's either high tech, high tech, or academia, and he wants academia. Nothing else. That's it. So that's <laughs> so, so that's why yeah. So that's why um, he his career path is more. I don't know. Has more. It's more limited. Let's put it that way. And uh, yeah, so he gets his first say. It doesn't have to do with the fact that I'm the mother and he's the father. It has to do with the fields we're in and uh, the, the things that we really want to do in our lives. And I respect him. I mean, he, he could go into high tech and make five times or ten times as much, but he wouldn't be happy. And I, you know, I totally get it because I want to do what I want to do too. Yeah, um, exactly. So yeah, it's like <laughs> it's not only about uh, you as a family, though. It's also yeah. about academia and research institutions and how they approach hiring men and women um, who have children. Or not. It's often so yes. that with men they wouldn't even ask if they have children. But that sometimes, even though it's often not even allowed to ask, they do ask women if they have children or maybe plans to have children in the near future. Right. Yes, yes. I hope we see. I hope we. See. I, I. I believe that there has been uh, some improvement in this area, and I really hope we see we see things shaping up um, because it's really impossible with. Uh, One, two, three postdocs. People do have families at some point. Not everybody, but some do. And it becomes really problematic. And for instance, if the salary is fine for a person living alone, but is not fine for a family of three, and, and, a, and a spouse who's dependent because he can't or she can't work, these are problematic issues um, that should be dealt with, I think. Yeah, and as you said, the question is, do you have kids? That they would ask a woman, are you planning to get pregnant? Yeah, we, we know this. This is very, very ugly. <laughs> But uh, no strategy yet, in your case, for applications. I said, if, if there's something that he really wants, then I will try and see if there's something available for me in the same vicinity. Uh, I, would, I was going to apply to a few places in, in, in Germany that I was interested, but I, I, would, I have to apply only next year. So it wasn't it wasn't relevant this mm -hmm. this time around. It was it was I wasn't ready yet to apply. Um, so if there's something I really want, I'll apply no matter where. I mean, yeah, I will apply. Uh, as I said, the language if it's a German speaking country, then great. I will apply regardless of my uh, of my spouse. But other than that, I'll try to apply once we know where he's going. 
Okay. Let us know how that goes <laughs> when you get some answers. <laughs> yeah, we're very curious. Yeah. Okay. Me too. <laughs> All right. Then I only have a few less questions left, really, to wrap up. Um, and the first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they well. have one or multiple things? <laughs> I don't know. I feel a little junior-ish. Uh, I don't feel like I could, you know, strut around and say, oh, my contribution. Uh, but I would say that um, my basic uh, idea about using audiovisual material for philosophical contemplation is uh, a contribution that I hope to make in my field. I haven't made it yet. <laughs> but it's on the way. On the way, on the way. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Well, I would say that I, I really appreciate what my advisor, Avinom Rosenak, has, has done in his field of philosophy of halakha, of Jewish law. Um, it was an inspiration for what I'm trying to do. Um, he showed that there's before performative aspects in something you wouldn't think to look for performance. And I really appreciate that outlook and it really shaped what I'm doing today. Okay, sounds good. Then the very last one is, how do you relax after a hard day of work? Um, well, that's a good question. Do I relax after a hard day of work? Right. When the kids I, are not jumping anymore. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not jumping. Sometimes I knit. Sometimes I watch uh, some TV. Um, yeah, sometimes... What, what else do I do? I don't, I, yeah, it's either either knitting or, or a cup of wine. I'm not very good on relaxation, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> Trying to sit down and <laughs> relax a little yeah. bit at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. That, sometimes that's really enough. Yeah. All right, Neda, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your academic journey with us. I learned a lot from listening to your journey. And I also want to thank the audience for listening yet again. Don't forget to connect with us. It's at what to do with that on social media, YouTube, and also on our website. We'd love to hear from you. All right. I did want to ask you if you can maybe explain your favorite part of the Jews are coming and explain how you analyze that in one of your articles very briefly, because I was just curious which part it was. <laughs> sure. <clears throat> one, one, one part uh, that I didn't publish as an article, I only spoke about it in a webinar of Wolf Institute in Cambridge, was about Thou Shall Not Rape, um, where, yeah, where um, Moses' uh, approach to Sister Miriam approaches him and says, what are you, there's only ten commandments, don't you see anything missing here? And I was trying to, I was trying to ask, is this a critique of religion or is, it, is, or is this a critique of our culture um, and I claim that it's not a critique of religion at, at all it's it's a critique of, of, of the human condition um, so that was one thing that was that was a close reading of a, of a dramatic uh, I call it a, a, a mitrash a, a, it's like a Jewish form of exegesis but it's just on video uh, but I never published about that anything but what I published about was uh, there's the uh, very funny skit um, from the first uh, season about uh, Korach the uprising of Korach where he says that Moses is taking all the uh, respect to himself and he wants to have some 
good jobs too. So in their retelling of it, uh, Korach says, uh, how about we do casual Monday? <laughs> and, and, I sh- yeah, and, I, and I show that this, this way of, of thinking about the text um, is, is, is radical because they think that the text doesn't have any answers and they don't even know what the question should be. But they're still looking at the text, the text, the biblical text as a source for negotiating uh, social questions, which means that they're still giving it some sort of uh, level of holiness, of secular holiness. So that was what I wrote about. Um, And uh, yeah, I, I I took the bodily language, I took the whole situation and I read it very carefully. And I said, this is this is a great reading of the text, even though it's very outrageous. Um, yeah. It sounds like very nice research to do. 